Welcome to the program, an update on treatment options for invasive fungal infections. My name is James Lewis, and I'm the Infectious Disease Clinical Pharmacy Supervisor at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. This program is approved for one CPE credit. You will be redirected back to the landing page after the webinar to complete the post-test and evaluation. You can then download or print your certificate. If you have questions throughout the program, please type them into the chat box on the lower left side of your screen. This program is provided by the North American Center for Continuing Medical Education, an HMP company. And this program is supported by an educational grant from Astellas. The learning objectives for today are first and foremost to outline pharmacologic options for invasive fungal infection treatment and prophylaxis, including PKPD profiles, efficacy, and safety data. We're also going to discuss antifungal medication-related adverse events and treatment approaches for adult as well as pediatric patients with invasive fungal infections, as well as antifungal resistance. We're then going to incorporate some of the latest data, including those data presented at the European Conference on Clinical Microbiology and Infection infectious diseases for clinical practice. Also, we'll discuss options for leading the healthcare team and actively diagnosing and treating invasive fungal infections. So with that, let's get going. And first, we're going to start off with aspergillus and where we stand with this organism. And in particular, we're going to place a lot of emphasis on the azoles during this presentation. So as most of you have hopefully seen, roughly three years ago now, the Infectious Disease Society of America updated its guidelines for the management of invasive aspergillosis. And when you really looked at these guidelines and compared them to previous editions, one of the, the things that's really striking is that voriconazole is still the primary therapy that's recommended. And one of the major pushes is to initiate therapy early. And this is really, you know, I think one of the issues that we see kind of across the spectrum with invasive fungal infections is that delays in effective therapy, as, ver as we see with bacterial infections, very often leads to worse outcomes. And so again, I think it's important that in patients who are at risk for these infections, that we keep them on our radar and think about making sure that we are starting therapy as early as possible um, whenever these infections emerge. Now, in the IDSA guidelines, the alternatives to voriconazole that are listed are isavuconazole and lipid formulations of amphotericin B. But as we will discuss, isavuconazole has completed a randomized trial head-to-head -head with voriconazole and has shown equivalence for the management of invasive aspergillosis. Furthermore, the 2017 update of the invasive aspergillus guidelines that are published in Europe have isavuconazole and voriconazole on level footing for invasive aspergillosis because of those data. The reason that you likely see isavuconazole not on level footing with VORI in the IDSA guidelines was that that paper was not in full peer-reviewed form when the, the guidelines were closed to new data. And so it will be interesting to see, and I would expect that in the new version of the IDSA guidelines, whenever they appear, that you will see VORI and ISA on level footing. Also, it's important to note that lipid formulations of amphotericin B are, at this point in time, considered still a very acceptable alternative to voriconazole or isavuconazole for the management of these, these infections. And echinocandins are not recommended, especially as monotherapy, for primary therapy. So let's jump real quick into a case. You've got a 49-year-old female with AML. She's got normal cytogenetics and is admitted for induction chemotherapy. 
you plan they plan then to follow up with an un, a stem cell transplant and i think at this point what type of infections do you want to be considering or do you need to be worried about in this patient type of a patient going forward and what drug classes are really some of your best options for you at this point in time so when you jump in to the azoles, really voriconazole remains probably the best studied and most well understood of the group with regards to the management of invasive aspergillosis. As pointed out to earlier, in 2016, the IDSA guidelines still say that voriconazole is the gold standard of invasive aspergillosis. However, I think that with the publication of some of the isavuconazole data, you could make a very reasonable argument that the two are now basically on level footing. It's also to, important to remember that when you're dealing with vor voriconazole, you have basically no mucromycosis activity at all. And one of the real strengths of not just vori, but also this class of agents is that both intravenous and oral formulations are available. Furthermore, voriconazole is now generic and has become substantially less expensive than it was previously. You also have very good bioavailability with these tablets, but I think it's important to note that the voriconazole oral bioavailability is probably not the 100% that a lot of us were taught when this compound first came out, and that the, probably the oral bioavailability on this compound, particularly in critically ill patients, is closer to 70 to 80%. We also know that voriconazole penetrates widely and gets into the central nervous system, and importantly, brain tissue, which prior to the advent of voriconazole, if you got invasive aspergillosis, especially central nervous system invasive aspergillosis, you had a huge problem on your hands. And I think almost everyone at this point would agree that this compound, as in 2019, really remains the agent of choice for central nervous system invasive aspergillosis. However, one of the things that we've learned a lot about are some of the downsides of voriconazole over the past you know, couple of decades that we've been playing with this compound. And really, I think one of the things that is not well recognized by a lot of providers is this question of skin cancer that has really popped up in the literature um, and I think continues to be an area that is not well recognized by a lot of providers. This, this entity has really emerged more in the dermatology literature than it has in the infectious disease or oncology literature. And so I think that's part of the reason that this is not as widely recognized as maybe as it should be. We've already talked a little bit about the fact that the bioavailability of this compound is probably not the 100% that a lot of us were taught when it came out, and is probably only in the 70 to 80% range. The other challenge that you really run into with voriconazole is that it's active across a wide variety of isozymes within the P450 group, and this really creates a lot of drug interaction challenges with this compound. I would argue that vori of the three broad-spectrum azoles that we're going to talk about that are currently in widespread clinical use, that vori is probably the most challenging to deal with with regards to P450 interactions. The other question that comes up with voriconazole a lot is that there is a lot of interpatient variability with this compound, and you can even see a lot of intrapatient variability with this compound. And so there's a lot of confusion, I think, about when to weight-based dose people and when not to. I think that when you're using this compound for actual treatment, probably weight-based dosing with a close eye on therapeutic drug monitoring is really the way to go here. Because we do know that as you go up with regards to voriconazole 
cannabinoid-cannabinosal serum levels, that toxicity certainly ensues, in particular LFTs and also hallucinations. And I think it's important to really distinguish hallucinations from some of the visual abnormalities that are reported in the literature. They are two distinct entities, and the hallucinations are exactly that, and they are not visual changes per se. It's also important for clinicians taking care of patients who are receiving voriconazole therapy. A lot of times patients won't tell you that they're noticing odd things, but if you ask them about these things, all of a sudden they'll be like, you know, I did notice that that pizza box over there in the corner has been talking to me for the last day and a half. One, there's probably no pizza box there. And two, there's certainly not a talking pizza box in the corner. But I think those are the types of conversations that you need to have with patients, especially when they're initiated on this therapy at higher doses, um, because you really kind of need to keep an eye on some of the central nervous system involvement that you can see with Bori. So when you transition off of Vori, the next one that you oftentimes think about is really posaconazole. And, you know, posaconazole now um, has been around for a while as well, but we've also seen some exciting changes with it in the last couple of years. And I think what it's most recognized for is its role, well-established role in prophylaxis in appropriate patient groups, but also the fact that the spectrum is broader than voriconazole with regards to the fact that you get some zygomycetes activity here. We also know that this is really the first broad-spectrum azole to show a significant mortality benefit in patients with severe grasp-versus-host disease and also high-risk patients with leukemia. And so this, these data really make posaconazole unique within the antifungal armamentarium. We've furthermore seen that posaconazole has historically been very well tolerated, although a lot of folks, have, and myself included, have questioned whether or not that tolerability is because the serum levels were so low with the old oral formulation. That leads me into the fact that you've now got solid tablet formulations and intravenous formulations, which for a long time were not available. It's important for pharmacists to really, really, really recognize and be very aware aware of the major dosing differences that you see between the posaconazole liquid and the posaconazole tablets and intravenous formulations. Both the FDA as well as the EMA have issued warning letters because of instances where patients have gotten doses mixed up. And if you give the oral liquid dosing, of the solid tablet formulation or the intravenous formulations, you certainly can get into toxicity with this compound. And so really keep an eye on and remember that there are distinct dosings there. It's also important to recognize that the FDA actually says that the tablets and the intravenous formulations are preferred over the oral liquid because the oral liquid is just so erratically bioavailable. It's just not a good formulation and should be avoided pretty much whenever possible. So the other strength of posaconazole, as I've alluded to, is really the fact that you've got um, such good prophylaxis data with this, and it really kind of makes it unique from that standpoint. But also it, very similar to voriconazole, get into a variety of tissues at effective levels. 
Some of the downsides to posaconazole I've already kind of touched on a little bit, and I think first and foremost is the difference between the tablets and the liquid formulation. Really at this point in time, the liquid formulation should be seldom used outside of pediatrics, and even then I would really try to stay away from that liquid whenever possible. The bioavailability is just very erratic, and especially if you're being forced to use it for treatment, you want to be very careful about doing therapeutic drug monitoring with it. The new tablets and intravenous formulations are only dosed, day, are dosed daily, which is, again, a major improvement over the older formulations. But a downside is that you really can't crush the tablets, and so you can sometimes get into difficulty with finding ways to administer these, this medication to patients who may have restrictions on their ability to take oral. We don't really know if the saturable absorption issues that were seen and described early with the liquid formulation are a problem with the tablets. It doesn't seem to be, at least in our experience and some limited experience at other centers. The erratic absorption that we saw early with this compound, and you will see described extensively in the literature, is really thought to be only with the liquid. But we and other centers have, have found that there are roughly still 10% of patients on the tablets who may not get to the therapeutic levels or the, the targeted serum levels that you would like to see. And so there's possibly still, though a markedly diminished, role for therapeutic drug monitoring with the use of posaconazole. You still, as we see with all of these azoles, are going to be dealing with cytokine Chrome P450 interactions. However, posaconazole is a little bit more straightforward than Vori in that it's primarily only an inhibitor of 3A4. The pH issues that we've seen with the liquid really don't appear to be an issue with the tablets. And so you, if your patient requires a PPI or acid suppression, this is much less of a big deal with the tablets than it was with the liquid. The thing that I would really encourage you to keep an eye on is this last bullet on the slide. I think that this is really an evolving and poorly or under-recognized um, complication of posaconazole therapy. And watch this in the literature over the next few years, because I think this may be something that is increasingly recognized. Um, and we've now started to see several case reports pop up with it and some very nice work that describe the mechanism of, of the toxicity that we're seeing with this compound. Furthermore, and this isn't really a weakness, I would really encourage you to keep an eye on posaconazole over the next couple of years because it appears that the tablets are due to go generic sometime in the very near future. And so we may see the advent of generic posaconazole more widespread on the market, which could potentially lead us to see more of this hypertension and hypokalemia side effect, but also more use as the drug becomes less expensive. So let's talk a little bit about isavuconazole, which is the newest kid on the block for the management of invasive aspergillosis. And really, when you look at isavuconazole, the spectrum for this compound is very similar to POSA. And that is, so it's obviously going to include candida aspergillus as well as cryptococcus. The, one of the strengths of the uh, intravenous formulation is that there's no cyclodextrin involved here. And so you don't have to worry about the cyclodextrin accumulation like you do with both posaconazole and voriconazole in its intravenous formulations. You also have treatment indications, and at this point in time, there's very little prophylaxis data. And there appears to be somewhat conflicting prophylaxis data um, in the literature. Our center 
described an experience where we saw higher than expected breakthrough rates of invasive fungal infections um, when using ISA for prophylaxis, but other centers have not seen this, and we are eagerly awaiting the arrival over the next couple years of some of the randomized data looking at isabuconazole for prophylaxis. At this point in time, it's only indicated for the treatment of invasive aspergillosis, and we'll talk about those data in a little bit. The other issue that we'll touch on is that recently published, I believe actually in the June 15th issue of Clinical Infectious Diseases, is the candidemia data with isabuconazole, and it appears to be slightly problematic as well, and so we'll talk about that. When you look at isabuconazole dosing, it's a once-a-day compound, and remember, it's administered as a prodrug. It comes as isabuconazonium sodium, and really that isabuconazonium um, is then rapidly converted to the active isabuconazole. Also, it has an extremely long half-life, and so loading doses with ISA are required, very similar to what you see with Vori and Posa. The bioavailability is very high, and the pharmacokinetics appear to be extremely predictable. And so I think at this point in time, this is probably the only of the three azoles that I would say therapeutic drug monitoring is not required for. However, keep an eye on this because this may be a situation where we just don't know what we don't know yet. But in our hands and in the limited experience described by others, it appears that the pharmacokinetics are very predictable. When you look at isabuconazole concentrations, um, it appears that they get you get concentrations that you would expect to be happy with, and really the adverse drug events associated with this compound um, are appear to, appear to be a somewhat improvement over voriconazole. And this is the data that we've been kind of alluding to thus far, and this is voriconazole versus isabuconazole for invasive aspergillosis as well as other molds. And this was published in Lancet in, tw in 2000. 2016. And what you can see as you work your way from left to right across the, so the slide is that, one, all-cause mortality was the same between isabuconazole and voriconazole. IFI mortality was the same, and overall response was the same. However, when you looked at where the difference between voriconazole and isabuconazole came, it was really in the tolerability of the compound. And again, as we kind of alluded to, vori is a somewhat difficult compound to deal with from a tolerability standpoint with regards to LFTs, as well as some of the central nervous system side effects that can be associated with it. So it's really not terribly surprising to see that isabuconazole Isabuconazole was better tolerated than Vori, but I think the really encouraging thing is that the compound was better tolerated but still had very similar efficacy in these invasive fungal infections. So let's return now to our case. So remember, you've got a 49-year-old male with AML normal cytogenetics who was admitted for induction chemotherapy. He underwent that induction chemotherapy and his neutrophils recovered on day 28 and he was discharged on day 30. He was then readmitted to undergo an allogeneic bone marrow or stem cell transplant from his brother, which was then success which was successful and then he was discharged home. However, unfortunately, he was readmitted with a pleuritic ch uh, with pleuritic chest pain, a dry cough and a new 1 centimeter nodule on on his CT scan. So at this point in time, because you'll notice one of the things that we didn't really address in that previous slide was did he go out on any prophylaxis? And I think in most U.S. centers, he definitely would have gone out on some prophylaxis. And so when this individual presents 
and has not been on prophylaxis with that type of a clinical scenario and a one centimeter nodule on chest CT, you've got to be thinking invasive aspergillosis. And so in a patient like this, you've now moved to a situation where you've got presumed or probable invasive aspergillosis. And while you're working this up, I think most clinicians would treat this patient as though they did have invasive aspergillosis. This brings us to an important study that is really not well, it is addressed, but it's it's kind of somewhat addressed in the 2016 IDSA guidelines. And this is a study that I think is going to lead to intense, shall we say, discussions for the foreseeable future at medical meetings. Historically, combination therapy for invasive aspergillosis looked good in animal models. It looked good in single-center retrospective studies. And then it moved forward to a randomized prospective study that was, you know, basically everything that you'd want to see. And it was voriconazole and gelofungin versus voriconazole plus placebo. And when you look at this, the mortality at six, at six weeks, which was the primary endpoint, had a p-value of 0.086, as you see here on the right side of the slide. This did not meet the primary endpoint. But you can see here in the Kaplan-Meier curve that, again, the, the, the curves are totally going in the direction of invasive or of the combination therapy. And when furthermore, when you look at the paper, the reason for failure in the monotherapy arm was oftentimes death, whereas the reason for failure in the combination therapy arm was more often lost to follow-up. And so there's a lot of kind of vagaries that kind of dance around in this study. And I would really encourage you to pull this paper and to take a long, hard look at it and see kind of where you come down on this. Because I will tell you that, you know, my bias after looking at these data, and I've heard several other folks at various meetings say this as well, is that especially when treating what is thought to be established invasive aspergillosis, most folks, even though the p-value didn't quite make the cutoff, are leaning towards combination therapy at this point in time. The other question that really you have to worry about here is which of these azoles do you want to deal with? And it's important to, I think, remember that voriconazole, although it's probably the best studied, is also probably the least well-tolerated of the new generation azoles that we have available. And when you're dealing with vori, I would really argue that therapeutic drug monitoring is required. Posiconazole tablets, I think that especially if you're using them for something other than prophylaxis, because of that 10% of patients that appear to not quite get where we would like them to be, and this has been reported across kind of multiple center studies, that you probably want to keep an eye on those therapeutic levels. ISA at this point in time, I think we need a little bit more data, but I think what data we have suggests that probably of the three, isavuconazole is the least likely to require therapeutic drug monitoring. Also, as a pharmacist, you really have to keep an eye on drug-drug interactions when dealing with these new azoles. All of these azoles markedly impact the, the cytochrome P450 system, and a lot of them impact PGP as well. And so I think from a pharmacist standpoint, one of the major roles on our, for us on our teams is to really ensure that we are carefully scrutinizing drug lists to make sure that drug-drug interactions are minimized as best as possible. 
Furthermore, you know, one of the major challenges that continues to come up is how do you dose these agents in kids? And this has really been an area that we have struggled. We've known that VORI is markedly different in children than it is in adults for some time, and there continues to be a lot of discussion of the best ways to dose VORI in children. Posaconazole, I think at this point in time, still remains a little bit of a black box with regards to how to best dose it in kids. And ISA, even though it is the newest on the block, is starting to emerge with some better pediatric data in how, with regards to how to dose it. And you can see that some of that data was recently presented at ECMID um, and I think is really something that would be worth you taking a close look at if you work a lot with pediatrics uh, who are at risk for these types of infections. So where do we stand with the advanced azoles in 2019? And I would argue that at this point, we've, we've got three of them, and the trick is how do you really distinguish them? And hopefully I've somewhat given you a sense of how to distinguish them as we've kind of worked through this section. I would argue that for invasive aspergillosis, they're probably pretty similar, but remember posaconazole only has prophylaxis data. There is a phase three randomized study for, of using POSA for treatment that hopefully is nearing completion. This study's been going on for a long time, and so hopefully we will see data with posaconazole for treatment in the not too distant future. I think there's now some substantial confusion about isabuconazole and its role in prophylaxis, and we really need to see a randomized study of ISA for prophylaxis to get a better sense of how to use it. The tissue penetration, I think, for all of these drugs across the board is very good, and we've talked about some of the challenges in looking at the indications. Remember, again, that ISA at this point in time is only indicated for treatment, and the prophylaxis data is evolving. The spectrum really, I think, is very similar between posaconazole and isavuconazole. There are some subtle differences within the mucorallies, and I think it's important to kind of keep an eye on those as we go forward, but I think for, for aspergillus, the three compounds are pretty darn similar. So with that, from that standpoint, let's kind of switch gears here a little bit and move in to candida infections. So let's start again with a case here. You've got a 71-year-old male with a history of diverticulitis who's admitted after getting three days of amoxicillin clavulanic acid as an outpatient over concern for possible perforation of his bowel. He goes to the surgical intensive care unit and promptly receives piperacillin, tazobactam, and vancomycin. And he's doing well in the surgical intensive care unit until about hospital day six when his fevers begin to increase and his white blood cell count begins to go up. Abdominal imaging that's performed at that time suggests that he has a new fluid collection. And so, you know, what organisms in a scenario like this would you really be concerned about? And since this is the candida section of the talk, hopefully you have a pretty good idea. And so when you look at organisms that are commonly associated with healthcare-associated infections, this is a paper that was published last year by McGill and colleagues that, originally, that updated a very similar paper from 2014. And what I want you to notice here is that candida is the number four cause of healthcare-associated infections on this slide. And when you move all the way over to the right, notice that it is in the top three with regards to causes of bloodstream infections. And so, you know, this again, candida continues to be a problem for us in U.S. hospitals, continues to be associated with high rates of morbidity and mortality, um, and is a, a significant problem. And I think 
you know, when you look at these data, these data are very similar to what we've seen historically with Canada being the fourth most common bloodstream isolate in you, many series. It's usually either third or fourth, but it's clearly the leading fungal pathogen in U.S. hospitals. And the attributable mortality associated with it is around 15%. Also of note, in an era where all of us are trying to do things to minimize length of stay and to minimize hospital costs, that 10 days are on average are what an, an incidence of candidemia tax on to the care of a patient. And at least $60,000 in hospital charges are associated with this as well. When you look at the pediatric impact of this, again, this is the second most common pathogen that is identified in the setting of sepsis for pediatric cases. And when you look at oncology and solid, solid uh, organ transplants, it's a common problem there as well with similar mortality type rates to what you see with the adult side. Furthermore, invasive candidiasis in children also represents a significant burden to the U.S. healthcare system system with, again, excess length of stay pushing out to almost three weeks in these kids and a significant amount of increase in hospital costs. So very similar to what you saw with aspergillus, in 2016, the IDSA updated the candidate guidelines as well. And so, you know, when you look at these guidelines. There's a lot of very useful things, I think, for, for individuals who are taking care of these patients day in, day out. And one of the things that I think is really important for providers to look at is who is at risk for these types of infections. And when you look at this list of risk factors, the thing that I hope you take notice of quickly is that this looks like almost everybody in your intensive care units. And, you know, there's a reason for that, and that is that basically that's who gets invasive candidiasis, and that's why it's seen as being so common in U.S. hospitals is because all of these risk factors are things that we commonly do to critically ill patients. But I also would really draw your attention to this subset group that is described at the bottom of this slide, and I think that this is really the group that, that really deserves special attention. Anymore, it seems like this is where you know, at least in our center and in talking with colleagues at other centers, these intra-abdominal nightmares seem to really be where a lot of, of the candidemia cases tend to pop up. And very similar to what we kind of touched on with aspergillus and very similar to what we've learned with bacterial infections, this is one of many studies now that really suggests that delays in effective therapy for patients who have invasive candida results in substantial increases in mortality. However, you know, I think we have to be careful because we continue to struggle with the diagnostics in this realm. And this is a really, really nice um, clinical evidence synopsis that was published in JAMA a couple years ago ago that talks about the challenges that we've had in trying to figure out who to go after, especially with um, the critically ill folks with early antifungal therapy. So I think, you know, you, you need to balance those risk factors that we talked about with basically the data that we have available from randomized trials that show the difficulty. And I would really encourage you to spend some time with this paper and give it some considerable thought with regards to how you're approaching these patients in your institution. 
In addition, you know, I think that susceptibility testing for candida isolates in particular is, go is becoming more and more important. This is a table that was adapted from the 2009 guidelines and really is not present in the 2016 guidelines, but I think the general concepts remain important. But it's important to note that the susceptibility testing piece has been strengthened in the 2016 guidelines and really is much more encouraged. It's important for you to recognize that there are multiple ways for clinical microbiology labs now to be doing at least fluconazole susceptibility testing for candida isolates, and that fluconazole really is a very good predictor of the other azoles when it comes to candida. The other thing that I would also point out is that, you know, candida glabrata at this point in time, you'll hear a lot of times people talk about fluconazole-resistant candida glabrata. It's really important to note that it's not a fluconazole problem, it is an azole problem, and that really all of the azoles are equally impacted because the primary driver for a lot of this azole resistance in glabrata appears to be an efflux pump that is able to efflux all of these azoles equally if well, irrespective of whether or not you spent two bucks on generic fluconazole or you spent $500 on IV posaconazole. So it's important to recognize that really the newer azoles don't buy you much, in particular with regards to candida glabrata over fluconazole. The other thing that we've seen is that candida albicans, as seen here yet again in this nice paper that was published last year in Open Forum on Infectious Diseases and was presented at ID Week, um, you know, really candida albicans in most centers continues to really kind of come down as a cause of invasive uh, or as a cause of candidemia, whereas glabrata is holding steady to maybe going up a little bit. And so that susceptibility piece that we talked about on the previous slide really becomes something you need to keep in mind. It also points out, and let me back up here real quick, that you really need to have a good sense of what's going on in your center. You know, that really recognizing what your local epidemiology looks like with regards to candidemia is important, and to recognize what units you're most likely to see it in within your institution. So coming back to our case, Remember, he's a 71-year-old male with a history of diverticulitis who's been in your surgical intensive care unit after uh, a bowel perforation and was receiving Piptazo. He started to decline on hospital day six, and those blood cultures are now positive. So now that his blood cultures are positive, what really should his therapy be? And when you go to the guidelines, you rapidly see a major change here. And this is now that basically anyone with candidemia should be receiving receiving an acinocandin as recommend or as initial therapy. Again, no real necessary length of therapy put on here, but at least until the patient is clinically stable and you have a sense of what organism you're dealing with, really the acinocandin is where you should be. The other alternative that's listed there is, again, our old reliable fluconazole. But again, notice the important caveats that are seen underneath here. That one, these, this should not be done in critically ill patients, but two, should not be done in people who are likely to have a fluconazole-resistant candida species. And so again, if you have a lot of glabrata in your institution or glabrata is driving a lot of your candidemias, you know, it's, especially if someone has seen prior azole therapy, I think you have to be very, very careful careful there. And this switch over to a kinocandin as the major driver or as the preferred primary therapy is a significant change from the previous guidelines.
When you look at the pediatric side of this, again, what you recognize very quickly is that really the azoles um, are, and the azoles and amphotericin B here, you know, do remain more kind of in play for pediatric side. But again, I would really argue that it's the echinocandins and fluconazole that really should be the agents of choice, even in our pediatric patients. And that really you do know a lot about fluconazole dosing in your pediatric groups. So the question that always comes up is, you know, how did the guidelines arrive at what they arrived at? And which of, you know, the three groups of drugs really is the best? And so really David Andy's um, patient-level meta-analysis that was published in Clinical Infectious Diseases in 2012 was really the major driver for a lot of the recommendation that you see in the current guidelines. And so let's walk a little bit through these data and see what they show us. First and foremost, you know, uh, Dr. Andes rounded up pretty much all of the registration studies that had been done for invasive fungal infections over the last decade and was able to get at patient-level data from all of them. And so these all came from really solid, you know, phase three type studies. And what it did was give you a patient size that you will never see in a single study. So you had almost 2,000 patients sitting here. Soberingly, what we noticed was that the mortality rate was still around 30%. And keep in mind, this is with all of our newer drugs. Um, and so we're still not doing terribly well there. And treatment success approached 70%. When you look, when when you looked at what caused, uh, or what was an independent predictor of a bad outcome in these patients, what you saw was a lot of what you would expect, that increasing age and higher Apache 2 scores really do not help things. Also, while you're at it, don't let them suppress your immune system. Interestingly, Candida tropicalis popped up as a major risk factor for a poor outcome, and I don't know that I've ever really seen this explained to my satisfaction, because it doesn't appear that tropicalis is more virulent than albicans, and so I don't understand why it, this would pop up, but other isolated reports have kind of hinted at this as well. So I think, you know, this is still something I kind of keep an eye on in the literature to see if something pops up here to help me understand a little bit better why Tropicalis fell out here the way it did. But if you're looking for a way to improve the outcomes of your patients with candidemia, I think there are two major take-homes from this study, and you see this alluded to in the guidelines as well. First and foremost, removing the central venous catheter appeared to be probably the best thing that you could do with these patients with regards to the improving their likelihood of a successful outcome. The second thing, though, was receipt of an echinocandinous therapy. And remember that this was compared to both azoles and amphotericin B. And you can see that the relative risk reduction or the odds ratio reduction um, was almost 30%. And you can see the confidence intervals listed there with the p-values. So, and it really didn't matter kind of how the data was looked at. Both of these things fell out as being of substantial benefit to patients with invasive candidiasis or candidemia. And this was further validated by a study that was published last year in Clinical Infectious Diseases where we finally got a good look at isavuconazole versus caspofungin for the treatment of candidemia and other invasive candida infections. 
Importantly, isavuconazole did not meet its non-inferiority endpoint compared to caspofungin. And at the end of IV therapy, which was the primary endpoint, you can see that there was about a 10% lower response rate for isavuconazole than there was for caspofungin, and that the response rate at the end of therapy also lagged. What's interesting, and again, David Andes wrote the editorial that accompanies this paper, is that this difference is very similar to what we saw with the fluconazole versus anidulofungin study that was published by Raboli in New England Journal of Medicine in 2006, and also very consistent with a roughly 10% difference that was seen in David Andy's large meta-analyses. So I really think that this, again, this is the second phase three randomized study where we've seen an azole basically not be able to meet non-inferiority as compared to an akinocandin, and I think really further strengthens the recommendation of the 2016 Candida guidelines that the echinocannons be the preferred agents for primary therapy. I've already kind of alluded to this previously, and so I'm not going to dwell on this a lot, but I think it's important really to remember that the guidelines have significantly strengthened the recommendation for susceptibility testing for candida isolates in 2016, and that there are numerous ways now that clinical labs can be doing susceptibility testing, at least for fluconazole. And so remember, don't go in there and ask your poor micro lab to do candida on or candida susceptibilities on every urine that comes through but certainly for bloodstream isolates at this point in time it really is something that we should be doing a lot more in US hospitals than we are testing for a kind of canon susceptibility should be considered, especially with glabrata or maybe parapsilosis, especially if the patient gets, gets a kinocannon, gets better, and then that organism were to reappear. I think a lot of us have a, a little bit of a false comfort that with the echinocannons that resistance isn't out there. There are certainly centers where resistance has become a problem with the echinocannons, and I think you have to remember that very similar to what we see with other infections, resistance can emerge on therapy, and it appears that glabrata may be the one that you really want to keep an eye on there, which again is problematic because azoles already have issues with candida glabrata. So coming back to our case of our 71-year-old male with a history of diverticulitis, remember he went back to the OR, he had to have that fluid collection drained, he has all of this intra-abdominal process that basically meets all of those high-risk factors. This guy is exactly who you should be worried about developing candidemia in your institution. We gave him, we gave him mycofungin for six days. He got better clinically, and those blood cultures eventually grew candida albicans. In this guy, I think the question I would want you thinking about is, would empiric therapy have been reasonable here? I would argue yes, that it would have been. But again, I think it's important to recognize the limitations of the data and to go back and look at that JAMA clinical data synopsis that I pointed out earlier in the presentation and to kind of think about how you would handle these types of patients um, when they come up in your institution.
The other thing that I would really encourage you to keep an eye on is Candida auris. The CDC continues to update their website on this, and this is a particularly problematic pathogen globally that is really starting to rear its ugly head in more and more sites in the U.S. At this point in time, it seems to be mostly focused in the Northeast, but this is, I think, going to be something you really need to be aware of, and I think this is a really good use of stewardship teams' time to talk to the clinical lab and say, hey, are we looking for this? How are, are we, do we have capabilities to identify this if it were to show up in our institution? And the problem with this organism globally is that it really does appear, especially in ex-U.S. reports, to be resistant oftentimes to all three of our frontline classes of drugs. So I would really encourage you to keep an eye on this website and to kind of keep your ear to the ground with regards to what is going on with Candida auris, because I think this, this may be a very problematic pathogen for us going forward. So to wrap up the Candida section, I think it's important to walk away from this with one major message, and that's that echinocannons are now your first-line choice for the management of invasive candidiasis and candidemia in 2019. Also, whenever possible, especially if it's thought that it's a if, – if you have a patient who is non-neutropenic and it's not thought that gut translocation is the primary source, it's highly likely that the line is involved. Pull the line whenever possible. You saw those data. You saw the benefit that appears to come from that with regards to the literature. We also continue to see evolution with regards to what bugs are causing these infections and really keep an eye on the CDC's webpage for Candida auris and keep an eye on what's going on on there. But also, similar to what you do with bacteria where you've got an antibiogram for your hospital, consider running those data or having the lab run those data for Candida as well so you know what organisms are, tend to pop up in your institution with regards to Candida, especially in bloodstream isolates. Furthermore, not only do you need to keep an eye on Candida auris, but you also need to keep an eye on what's going on with Candida glabrata in your institution, and, and especially in folks who receive an echinocandin and then represent in a short time frame with Candida glabrata again, really strongly consider asking for echinocandin susceptibility testing on that isolate. So with that, I really want to thank you for taking time out of your day to join us for this presentation. I hope that you found it beneficial, and I really hope that it will help you in going forward with the management of your patients. Thank you again for your time. Hopefully you enjoyed the presentation, and we'll now turn it back over for questions.